You're listening to episode 173 of the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we talk about a hidden superpower of trauma. Welcome to the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we explore how to use the science of psychology, Eastern spiritual practices like mindfulness and compassion, and the game-changing work of self-coaching so you can free your mind and free your life. I'm your host, Anna Verzoni. Aloha, Rebels. I'm here at my home on the Big Island, and I just went to the best Maui Love Benefit concert with Anuhea and other amazing bands. It was very healing and raised a ton of money for Maui. Now, a couple of episodes ago, after the Maui fires, I covered some tips on what to do to help someone who's just been in a crisis. And I mentioned that some people deal with the crisis by just getting shit done, like focusing on what to do and staying busy. And that got me thinking about a concept that I learned from the brilliant therapist Janina Fisher, who I heard give an amazing lecture at a trauma conference. And She spoke about how our capacity to dissociate from our traumatic emotions was a superpower. And this really kind of shocked me. I harbored a lot of guilt about how I powered through things in life without truly feeling some of my bigger emotions like grief and and other big emotions. For example, I thought there was something seriously broken in me when I was at work seeing a patient And I got called out of my room to take a call from my mom who told me my dad had just died. And I left his bedside only three days prior and was planning to return that weekend. I was gutted. And, you know, I cried. I wiped away my tears. I told my medical assistant what happened. And I was like, okay, I'm going to see the next two patients and then go home to pack and drive to my parents. And she looked at me and she was like, don't you just want to go home like now? I can tell your patients what happened and we'll deal with it. And I was like, wait, I can do that? I don't have to just power through? And I was like, of course I can do that. How fucked up am I to not just see that this was devastating and that I should feel it and perhaps not be able to function at work. And I was having all kinds of guilt, like not prioritizing my family and things like that. Or another time when I was diagnosed with kidney cancer, which had a 5% five-year survival rate, and I barely took any time off from graduate school at UCSF after my surgery. This close to mortality, just taking enough time off to be able to walk to my classes again. You know, my get your shit together self stepped in without my even thinking it through. I didn't decide. It seemed like there was no other option. And Janina explained this phenomena beautifully and compassionately. So I want to share it with you today. And I'll link to her work in the show notes as well. Now, a few episodes ago, I talked about how our greatest betrayal is when we betray ourselves. Another way of saying this is when we are alienated from ourselves. And this is so common with trauma because trauma necessitates that we become alienated from ourselves. I mean, think about it like 
as children, we went through all the shit we've been through, the rejection, humiliation, shame, abuse, violence, and didn't create a separation from our very big feelings. Like if we didn't create a separation, it would have been too overwhelming. So instead, we checked out. Maybe we left our bodies or we pretended to fall asleep or we forgot or didn't even allow ourselves to create a memory to begin with because we shut down. We distance ourselves from our true feelings, the fear, the rage, the anger, the sadness, the grief, the loneliness, all when we don't even have a strong sense of self yet. We're so young. So really, doing this, the capacity to do this is a superpower because now when we've dissociated from these overwhelming emotions, now there's a part of us as a child that can continue to grow and develop. And for many, even pretty damn normally, because the child that got rejected or ignored, the one that felt such deep pain, that child's now someone else. We like other them. But we had to do this to survive, right? Because in trauma, our basic needs of safety, attachment, love, being cared for, our needs were used against us. Love was withheld. We were put in danger. We were punished or taken advantage of. So of course our brain learned to disown those parts. It was dangerous not to. So this actually helps us adapt to trauma. And because part of this is seeing all those intense feelings as bad, we somehow still are able then to form attachments even to people that abuse us. Isn't that wild? And also kind of amazing what we're able to do to survive. Because when you're a little kid and your primary caregivers are dangerous, you have to do something. Because even if that person isn't going to unconditionally love us, we still need someone to provide shelter and food, whatever we can get, right? So understanding that many of us have had to become alienated from ourselves, it's good to ask, you know, what kind of relationship, if any, do we have with ourselves, especially our young selves? When these big feelings come up, are we able to comfort ourselves? Do we show ourselves self-compassion? Do we love and support our young selves? And for many of us, the answer is no. It's more likely that we actually criticize ourselves, shame ourselves. We have an ongoing narrative that's commenting on everything we say and do and think. We self-judge, self-hate. We aren't very kind to ourselves. And I say younger selves because, you know, these big feelings, really all our feelings actually are our younger selves. The limbic system's structurally formed by the time we're 13. So when it's activated, all of our feelings are young. And we might learn to be skilled at expressing them or maybe even managing them, but they are inherently young. Now, one of the things we might also notice with this self-alienation is a term coined by Janina Fisher called terminal ambivalence. And this is for clients who can't make a decision, who go back and forth, or then they undo decisions, then they sabotage the decision they just made. Does that sound familiar? This is such a great example of the inner conflict between parts that occur when they aren't being seen or heard, when we don't have a relationship with them. It's a real struggle that I'm sure many of us have experienced. Another thing that happens as a result of this separation from our true selves is that we either numb out, intellectualize, or get hijacked by emotion. The intellectualization comes up because for many of us, it wasn't safe to be anything but 
in our heads. And I know for me, this is very true. My head is my happy, safe place. Things make sense in my head. And some of us get hijacked by emotion. It's not so much that we have too much emotion, but rather we have nothing but emotion and we don't have access to our thinking brain, right? But we need the help of our thinking brain to help bring some kind of capacity for regulation of our emotions. And if not, that's when we often struggle with buffering, escapist behaviors like over drinking, eating disorders, other self-destructive behavior, right? Or we numb out, right? Something else we do when we self-alienate is we don't take ownership over our harmful, unskillful behavior. Ownership is when I might say like, hey, I'm sorry I lashed out. That was unnecessary. Or when I say, yeah, I see that I can get too aggressive sometimes. That's ownership. But if we're alienated, we don't own it or we might not even see it. Like we don't see that we're angry and we're shocked when someone describes us as angry or we're like, what Wait, what, what do I have to apologize for? I didn't do anything wrong. Right? And Janina Fisher says many mental health challenges are disorders of self-alienation, including treatment-resistant depression and anxiety. So why do we engage in self-alienation when it causes us so much suffering? Well, for one, the brain is set up for it. Now, this is really simplified, but in general, the brain has lots of different structures. They all have different functions, and they talk with each other through these neural networks you may have heard me mention before. The two biggest structures are the left hemisphere of the brain and the right hemisphere. And they're split down the middle, right? There's a chasm between them. And that's where the corpus callosum lies. And this helps the two sides communicate. But this structure develops very slowly. The left brain's really analytical and it's related to the prefrontal cortex and planning and organizing and executive function. And the right brain is very emotional and intuitive and sensorial and is more closely related with the limbic system. In the first five years of life, the right brain is dominant. Young kids often have words to be able to convey their experience and they speak, but it's limited and they're more in tune with body language or any kind of nonverbal language. And they're really good at sensing, right? They can't always put what they sense into words, but they sense it and they can intuit danger. Maybe they can't evaluate whether it means they're actually in danger or not, but they intuit it. And as a side, I, I think of my clients that mention how they feel they can't tell the difference between their intuition or dysfunctional anxiety or real danger. So hold that thought because this will all come together. <laughs> now, the left brain develops slowly, so we don't develop more extensive language ability until closer to five years old. But once we have a brain that has language and once we have access to the left side of the brain, then we also have the ability to organize information. We can see patterns and have the capacity to learn from our experiences. Although Western civilization manages to repeat mistakes pretty consistently throughout history, but that's a tangent. <laughs> so the left brain gives us lots of information about science, observations, math, our own lived memories, and it helps us create stories about those memories. And just as an aside, its job isn't to get the details right. It's to get the gist of the memory, just so you know. All right. So the left brain can assess danger and analyze data, but it can't sense danger. It's not a sensing part of the brain. That's the right brain. So here we have our sensing emotional brain on the right and our thinking, verbalizing, logical brain on the left. And the two actually don't speak 
speak effectively to each other for many years until that corpus callosum is more developed. So back to the corpus callosum, it's this long, thin, narrow structure, and it's to help communicate back and forth between both hemispheres of the brain. So when your left brain says, you know, Janina gives this example, when you're speeding, the left brain's like, slow down, right? That has the left brain pumping the brakes on the right brain's impatience to get somewhere. And we rely on the emotional information from the right brain to reach the left brain so the left brain can put into words and plans and stories what's arising on the right side of the brain. And we rely on the ability of the left brain to actually express our experience in a way that others can understand the problem. Now, the corpus callosum doesn't mature until about age 12. So during childhood, they operate almost like two different people, these two sides of the brain. And with traumatized children, their corpus callosum smaller than non-traumatized kids. And I think that helps it make sense that this can contribute to us getting easily hijacked by our emotions when we're older. Now, the brain imaging research of Bessel van der Kroft from the mid-90s, he wrote The Body Keeps the Score, and he and his team find out that when people remember trauma, the left brain and prefrontal cortex shut down and the right brain and limbic system suddenly start firing. Isn't that crazy? And this can also explain amnesia post-trauma because the left brain can't process and even form memories because the left side shut down or inhibited. So all of this that I've been going over is part of the foundation for the model called structural dissociation theory, which is the work of Ono Vanderhart and Kathy Steele and others. It's been around for a really long time and it's also evolved. I think it was pretty ableist in some of its original terms and structures and whatnot, but having structural dissociation means we're split into different parts, each with a different personality, feelings, and behavior. This is why we can feel completely different from moment to moment. One moment we feel loved and secure, and the next we can feel hopeless and alone, and then later in the day, maybe add in some anger or rage. And you might think that this sounds like IFS too, and there are similarities, but they're a bit different too. And I'll talk a bit more about IFS in a bit. Now, one of the main concepts in structural dissociation theory is that we have a part of us that's like our part that helps us get through normal everyday life and the other part that's more emotional. So the part that gets through day-to-day life avoids the trauma content and our emotional part acts it out. All right. So we got this left brain, right brain action again. So When we're traumatized, this split between the left and right brains that's already naturally there becomes more pronounced. The left brain part of the personality carries on as if nothing's happened. This is the going on with normal life self. And I think that's kind of an awkward phrase. So I'm, because it's my podcast, I'm going to say it's the get your shit together self. (laughs) And the right brain part of the personality houses our emotional parts, our traumatized self. And it has, you know, no words, just nonverbal experience. So it holds implicit memories of what happened and the survival responses needed to anticipate and prepare for the next trauma, right? And what we can see is that the left part had to dissociate from the right just to help us survive. It had to kick in to help us survive. And that's the same part of the brain that helps us get through the day 
right? Get through the bullshit when we feel like falling apart. And it's also why some of us can, oh, say, get four graduate degrees even when we're in fight or flight mode most of our lives. Working as a climbing guide in the Himalayas and in the emergency department, as a midwife, as a psychedelic guide, it lends itself well to these parts of me that want to be hypervigilant and keep people safe and tend to them, anticipate their needs and whatnot, right? (laughs) So I think it's also important to note that this capacity to highly function can lead to a sense of uh, imposter syndrome, not just, you know, because of patriarchal bullshit about, you know, constantly feeling like we're never qualified enough or good enough, but also knowing that, okay, wait, I have all of this success, but I still feel so disconnected from all of me, right? From, from a, or more accurately, like a whole sense of me. So Janina calls the left part of the brain going on with normal life because of that ability to keep on keeping on. And she said that this often comes out as an instinct, not a decision. It can be both, but it's often out of instinct. Like when I got the news that my dad died, I'd been by his bedside for days and only came back to work two to three days, right? And then we have some crisis, some loss, some illness. We're not feeling well. Maybe you have a medical problem in the family, some hard shit. And we might feel like shit and think, I can't do this right now. But we do. Or when I worked in the ER and saw such horrific accidents and traumas. I mean, what if I burst into tears at work and collapse, right? What if I can't see that patient who really needs me, who's been waiting all this time for an appointment with me, yet somehow we managed to show up because we have an instinct to show up, to survive. We don't want to let our friends, family, clients, patients down. And somehow there's something that enables a capacity to go on with normal life out of the depths of whatever we're going through. And we show up. It's a fucking miracle, really. But it's instinct for the traumatized brain. You know, like I said before, I really shamed myself for thinking I should go back into my patient's room and finish the visit. What was wrong with me that I couldn't just feel the news that I received that my dad died. I was, I felt awful, broken, guilty, ashamed. But the more I learn about the brain and trauma, I realize that this get your shit together self is something to be proud of. You know, it helped me pay the bills after a divorce. It helped me go to work after being hit by my boyfriend. It helped me take care of my baby while feeling abandoned and alone. Now, having sung the praises of the left side, the get your shit together part of the brain, we also, yes, we have to have a relationship with our right brain, the traumatized emotional part. And sometimes we may feel the need to play down our trauma, right? Lots of clients that do this. They're like, oh, it wasn't so bad. That can't be the cause of all this. And they feel almost ashamed that they're having a deep level of suffering over what they interpret as not big of a deal. And you know, if we're looking at it from a parts perspective, we can say, okay, but which part is talking when we're playing down our trauma? Maybe it wasn't so bad for your get your shit together self, but if you ask the traumatized part of us, it might have a different opinion about how bad it was. So of course it wasn't bad for our get your shit together self because its job is to get shit done, right? which is a lot easier than having to feel and be with a traumatic experience. 
So let's look at common defense mechanisms. We have the ability to cry for help, right? Humans are better at it because at a certain point we develop language more effectively. We have the instinct to fight, even though we're not as good at it as other mammals like tigers and whatnot. We're not as fast, but we can flee. We can freeze like a deer in headlights, try to be invisible. And when all else fails, right, we can submit. And often that is accompanied by a strong sense of humiliation. So structural dissociation theory says that the more traumatic the exposure, the more fragmented the individual must become to be able to survive. And we develop parts that represent and are driven by these different survival defensive. And it's related to IFS in this way, right? So a part that fights is a part. There's a part that flees, a part that freezes, a part that submits, and a part that cries for help. And here's where I think, you know, personally, I think that the, the theory would benefit from evolving and to be similar to IFS in that all of these parts are in all of us. All of us. So structural dissociation theory says those parts are only present if you've been traumatized. But Dick Schwartz, the founder of IFS, said they're present in all of us. And that, that's what I believe, too. Now, in trauma, they become more extreme, more polarized, and we may be more likely to act on them, right? Now, I've had many clients who've had really traumatic life experiences who also managed to be extremely successful, right? Even with severe symptoms, you know? I've managed to get a lot of shit done, even with a deep history of pain and trauma and suffering day to day. Now, I know some of y'all with the inner critic, like I've got is like, oh, well, fuck, am I doing trauma wrong because I'm not being all successful with all my shit? No, 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 no. Um, we're not saying that, okay? I'm just saying even, like, it's not about the degrees or the degree of success. It's that there is a part of us that manages to get us often to go and get shit done, to go to work, to make the phone calls, to change the diaper or what, whatever it is. And yeah, of course, uh, at an extreme we may not even be able to do that. But we can recognize that part of us that's like, get your shit together and get shit done as a superpower, right? You know, we can have a partner, a career, maybe even kids, although that can tend to push us over the edge with our capacity to manage. And like I said earlier, we can often feel like an imposter when we're pulling off this normal life amidst our suffering because it doesn't feel real. We feel like a fraud. And what feels real isn't the shit we're getting done, the partner, the house, the career, but the suffering, the inner torture, the shame. What feels real is the parts of us that try to keep us safe by keeping us from being vulnerable, being authentic, asking for what we need, speaking our truth, standing up for ourselves, allowing our feelings, because that part or parts of us still think the war isn't over. They still think it's dangerous out there. And that's all on the traumatic side of the brain. Okay, and back to these parts. By the way, if it's not obvious, this is different from DID or dissociative identity disorder. That's more complex and it can be related, but uh, I'm not going to dive into that depth here. So the, we also have an attached part of us, right? The, the attached part wants love, closeness and protection. There's a submit part. And this is when we feel trapped and we can't see a way out. 
you know, I mean, really all children are trapped because of their age and circumstance. So a submit part can show up as someone who's depressed or feels hopeless, helpless, feels ashamed, right? I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. I don't deserve anything. So we might say, oh, that person has depression. But the more correct phrase would be, that's the depressed part of the person, the flight part can look like when we go to therapy or coaching sessions and then never go back. <laughs> or if we're like one foot in, one foot out, we never quite fully commit. And the flight part helps us keep our distance. And it can also look like buffering or escaping because these are ways of fleeing without having to actually go anywhere. We're fleeing from our big feelings. And then we have the fight part, right? very familiar. <laughs> it's the only defense response that has some uh, aggression, right? So it can be angry and it could be aggressive towards our own bodies or others, it can be uh, paranoid. And the beautiful thing is all of these still have the intention of looking out for us. They can see the pain of the other parts. So like the, the fight part can see the pain of the other parts like suffering of our attached parts and try to free us from that, even though it's not a good long-term solution when it comes to the fighting often, right? So the just to reiterate, right? Self-alienation can look like depression, anxiety, insomnia, suicidal ideation, and these are all parts. This can also be more obvious when our emotional response is disproportionate to the trigger. Hello, that's something I'm familiar with, right? It's like like me kicking the milk carton down the stairs story that I told a couple episodes ago. So yeah, it's like, all right, it's not about the ricotta. This is my <laughs> past trauma being activated here. Okay, I also often see and feel myself that the other shoe is going to drop. This is another sign, right? I even almost feel a sense of relief sometimes when shit hits the fan because that's what I've been sitting around waiting for anyway. Like the prepper that gets to use their bomb shelter is stoked in some way. <laughs> so this expectation of danger can also show up as a mistrust of others, like my tendency to believe that people will let me down. So our attach and fight parts are often the two that give us the most difficulty. The attach part can easily be heard. It's really vulnerable, right? Our abandonment issues or anxious attachment issues get activated so easily. But then in reaction, our fight parts get activated and they can hurt others, maybe the person who hurt us or hurt ourselves. So we need to care for and tend to our attach parts. So our fight part doesn't have to take over, right? Easier said than done. We can intellectually understand this, but the actual work is hard, like being in a long-term relationship. You know, they require us to have a lot of compassion for ourselves so that we can tolerate the moments when someone we care about lets us down, hurts our feelings, misunderstands us, or betrays us. Right? So I want to emphasize how self-compassion is the most important thing we can cultivate on our healing path. But it's not as sexy as doing a past life regression, right? <laughs> so where do we start in this path of healing our self-alienation? First, we can try to overcome the fears we have of accepting that we even have these parts to begin with especially when there are some that we really want to just get rid of or are ashamed of. So if we enter into this long-term relationship with our parts being like, I hate you, I wish you'd just disappear, 
that's not sustainable and it's not a healing environment. So the first thing we want to do to help us cultivate more acceptance of our parts is to stop seeing them as who we are. We want to make sure we don't identify with the voice that's saying, I hate them either. What's saying that is actually another part, not our true self. It's a part that hates the other parts, right? Like a fight part that wants to control other parts. (laughs) So Janina calls her model uh, for addressing this healing of our self-alienation, trauma-informed stabilization treatment, TIST, T-I-S-T. And it integrates techniques and ideas from internal family systems, sensory motor psychotherapy, ego state work, clinical hypnosis. Now, IFS believes all of us have the capacity for self-leadership and self-healing, right? This is like the analogy I use when I describe the psyche healing, for example, in psychedelic-assisted therapy, um, like the healing of the body. When we cut ourselves, if we have the right conditions, the wound is cleaned out and all of that, the body will heal on its own. We don't have to think about it or remind it. So our psyche can also heal. So in IFS, there's also discussion of qualities of the self, eight qualities, the eight C's, curiosity, compassion, clarity, creativity, courage, calm, confidence, and connection. These are in IFS, never damaged or destroyed ever. And I know a lot of us feel damaged and I've had a lot of clients use that word, but really the better word considering this analogy is wounded, right? Janina suggests that word and I like it. Now, these qualities of self are there in all of us, but why haven't we used them or accessed them? Well, we've been taught it isn't safe to express them. Like being curious is often not safe in an abusive environment. On the other hand, hypervigilance, yeah, totally pays off. In a dangerous world, compassion seems really vulnerable and unsafe. Clarity or of perspective is lost when our prefrontal cortex gets hijacked due to trauma being activated. Creativity, same thing. We need the prefrontal cortex too. Courage, you know, we actually have it. We need it to survive our trauma. You know, our get your shit together part needed it to do. It had to be done, but we often don't feel we have it because it's always been used to survive and not for our own personal growth. And if we can't access courage for ourselves, that's because of the trauma, not because we lack courage. And calm, you know, authentic calm, we've been taught to act calm, having to be quiet. So, when we're trying to access being calm authentically, it can also be activating, right? So these qualities of the self, of the true self, often take practice and self-compassion, nurturing ourselves, loving ourselves. This is essential, and it also takes practice. Now, we can access these eight quality of self more easily when we're in the get your shit together self, right? We require self-compassion to do so, though. We can start by just picking perhaps like one of the eight C's, right? You've heard me talk about the importance of self-compassion, but many people are afraid of that. Like I said, not as sexy or seems super awkward or really sort of unfamiliar. So a lot of people enjoy starting with curiosity, but it really doesn't matter because they're all really valuable. So 
You know what I was just realizing? When I created the ZGIP Mastery Program over a decade ago, I'd never even heard of Dick Schwartz or IFS. And in the ZGIP Mastery Program, I focused on cultivating the qualities of ZG, which I called the seven C's. Clarity, clearing, being able to let go, compassion, courage, choice, commitment, confidence. And there's like four of the IFS's eight. If you want to check it out, go to joinfreedomschool.com. That's courses included in uh, Freedom School. It's a seven-week course. But I just thought that was so cool. I was like, I had seven C's and Dick had eight C's. So anyway, I really love this concept of curiosity. If I ever redo that course, I'm going to add this in there. It can be such a helpful one to start with because it can transform when we're feeling inadequate or confused, Right it makes these uncomfortable feelings interesting, more interesting. So we want to try to be genuinely curious, genuinely listening to our different parts, right? Because they never get listened to. And Janina said, you know, they don't want to share memories usually. They want to talk about their pain. Like the fight part wants to talk about justice, right? I, I can so relate to that. My fight part's like, this isn't fair, and this is why, and this is what is fair, and this is what should happen. All of our parts want to be validated, right? Our parts are there to protect us. And that's so important to understand. Like the honor of the loyal soldier I spoke about in my episode on the North in the Wild Mind series. For example, our hypervigilance and mistrust allows us to more easily detect danger, which we need to be able to react quickly to if it arises. This is for our survival. So in order to befriend our parts, we need to start identifying them and being willing to welcome them. You know, we can say, okay, when I lose my shit or get hijacked by an emotion, which part is showing up? What's their purpose? What are they protecting me from? Like, Maybe we have a very attached part who's so sensitive to rejection. And when it gets hurt, the fight part goes into a rage. This happens to me when my husband lets me down. I feel abandoned or unsafe all over again. And maybe there's a submit part that then has to go back and apologize to, to all, the, all the peeps, right? And that can bring up shame. So any of these parts, they're not ourself. Then that's another essential thing. Knowing that the parts are not our self can help decrease or even eliminate the shame. So using parts language can help us not identify with these parts that are never the self because the self is of the eight C's. So if you don't have those qualities of the eight C's, that's a part talking. So we can use phrases like, there's a part of me that... So if we want to say, I'm really defeated, we can instead say, there's a part of me that feels really defeated. We can learn that a defeated part, it doesn't mean we have to give up. It means we have a defeated part. And Janina calls this relentless reframing. It's training our brains to see these different younger selves and emotions as parts and not identifying with them as the self. So it's not a surprise that this requires mindfulness, right? Again, why a mindfulness practice can be so powerful because when we're mindful, we aren't getting hijacked by an emotion. Instead, we are relating to it. We can say, oh shit, I see that's a really big feeling and it's scary AF, but we don't go, oh no, I'm fucked. It's all hopeless, right? So we can gain familiarity with how emotions feel in our bodies so we can recognize them earlier. 
Another thing we can do is to remind ourselves that when there are unhelpful or unskillful perspectives coming up and we're not in the eight qualities of self, like curious, compassionate, clear, calm, confident, etc., then we need to identify that as a part. We need to know that that's who's speaking, not our authentic self. So in IFS, like I mentioned earlier, any feeling, reaction, or thought that isn't compassionate, curious, those other eight qualities, that's a part. And this is so helpful when we see distressing thoughts, feelings, or physical reactions as our parts trying to communicate with us. So when we're mindful of saying, I feel hopeless or I want to give up, we can ask ourselves, which part is feeling that way, right? All these big emotions, big feelings, big physical sensations, that's a part trying to communicate with us. So, you know, play with it. Ehipasiko. Go see for yourself, you know? This way we have more choice, agency, sovereignty. We can start to ask which one of the many parts of me will dominate today? And how will I be and which part of me will decide? This is a choice. However, usually first, we have a lot of experiences of getting hijacked. You know, Janina and IFS use the language that parts dominate us through blending with us. So it's like, whoa, I'm really blended with the hopeless part. And blending happens when our present self gets flooded with emotions from a child part. And then we start to identify as that part. And we may even act when we're blended like that. So, you know, I think of it more as being hijacked, but I I can see how the blending is actually a bit more accurate. So we the step is to recognize when we're blended, right? Mindfulness helps us recognize this. Mindfulness of emotions, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of thoughts. And you can see how Buddhist psychology really was so ahead of the game on this, being like 500 BC and whatnot. So We can be mindful and able to notice the intense emotions as a part and unblend, but first we have to notice that we're blended in the first place, right? We have to be able to recognize it. So we're at home, we start to feel depressed, and we're like, oh shit, I'm blended. And then we get curious about unblending. So there's five parts to this, all right? We're almost done. Thanks for hanging in there. I know this is a long one, but it's so good, right? (laughs) So first, step one, you know, we notice the part. And like in meditation, we have an awareness of awareness. We notice that we're noticing the part, right? There is a whole self that notices the part. We recognize that all big emotions are most likely a child part. Then we use parts language and say, a part of me is, that's step two. Three, then it involves the body. We can create some space between ourselves and the part by activating our core strength. Maybe we sit up, like sit up, we stand taller, we um, lengthen through our spine, and then we can repeat, they are feeling, right? We can then have more access to our wise mind and have a conversation with the part that's coming up. And then we can get feedback from that part. Hey, do you like it when I notice you? What do you need? Right, then we promise them that we'll continue to check in with them and pay attention when they're in distress. So, you know, when that big emotion arises, it's like, oh, fuck, now I got to go break up again, or now I'm going to go and make this big dramatic decision, right? It's like, no, what? Okay, this is a part speaking to me. I'm going to 
trying to communicate with me. I'm going to pause and have a conversation with it. So you see, self-compassion is essential because without it, we're going to really easily fall into judgment of that child part. We'll want to stuff it away, quiet it down, or hide it instead of care for it. So step like zero, ground zero, is to cultivate self-compassion. Okay, my friends, that was a lot, but thank you for hanging in there until next week, okay? And we are working on cultivating a daily practice in Freedom School this month. We're going to be doing a spiritual cleanse. We're going to be talking about meditation for rebels. So come join us. Go to joinfreedomschool.com. I'll see you there. If you like what you heard, spread the love and share it. And if you want to learn more about how to free your mind and free your life, check out rebelbuddhist.com and grab my free Rebel Buddhist training kit where you'll receive a video training on cultivating resilience, a copy of the gorgeous Rebel Buddhist Manifesto, and more. That's rebelbuddhist.com.